The Hearing. Twill Takeover. Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law. I would ask anyone who's in a position of power in the legal profession to be imaginative and creative in solving this. Imagine that your best client came to you and they said, we want you to make your firm a more equal place. What would you do to make that happen? And in many cases, the answer is you would do more than you're already doing. And you wouldn't say, oh, oh, that sounds rather hard. We don't do hard things. Welcome back to the Twill Takeover of the Hearing. This is a mini series where we are talking to women leaders and about women's leadership in partnership with Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law, or TWIL for short. TWIL is a group that is dedicated to advocating for cultural change in the legal profession and addressing some of the structural barriers that can impact women in the legal industry. Today, I was thrilled to speak with Florence Brocklesby, who is the founder of Bellevue Law. Bellevue is a boutique law firm that focuses on litigation and employment law. In Florence's words, they have happy lawyers working there. And I think that's because of the culture that she has created at her firm. What I loved about speaking with Florence was, you know, just that her story is so inspiring because she reached a point in her career and a point in her life where she really didn't see the type of law firm out there that worked for her and that worked for the place that she was in, in being a working parent. And so she went out and created it. Um, And not only created this law firm, but brought other people along with her. And she proves, I think, with her firm that you can offer flexibility, you can create a humane place to work in law, and yet still practice law at the highest levels, you know, providing top level advice and counseling to your clients creating more law firms like Bellevue that give options and flexibility to all lawyers, including women, would really move the needle in terms of making the legal profession a better place to work. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Florence as much as I did. The Hearing Twill Takeover. Welcome, Florence, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You've had a very impressive career, and so I wanted to start us off today by talking a little bit about your path in law and ask you to tell us about how your career started. Well, I started as a trainee solicitor uh, in the London office of Freshfields, which is a very um, conventional way to start a legal career that's taken a few twists and turns since then. But I joined Freshfields in 1998 just around the time of the dot-com boom and spent a very busy couple of years as a trainee solicitor in the London and Brussels office of Freshfields. And then I qualified into the litigation department there where we were working on very large cases and I was a very junior lawyer. And then my life turned slightly upside down because after a year of that, I moved to Freshfields Hong Kong office where I was still a very junior lawyer, Uh, but the cases were a little bit smaller and more varied, and I got a lot more responsibility at a very early stage in my career than might otherwise have been the case. And I also got my first taste of employment law in Hong Kong, because in a smaller office, you work across a range of uh, different areas of law. And so by the time I came back to London in 2003, I was able to um, advise on litigation matters and on employment law matters. 
And at that point, I made the transition to become the firm's first pro bono lawyer. And was being a lawyer something that you aspired to do all along? Or, or would the school-age Florence be, be surprised at, at where you ended up? School-age Florence's parents thought she was quite argumentative and might make quite a good lawyer. But actually, I didn't know um, until a couple of years after university that that was what I was going to do. So, so I studied philosophy, politics and economics at university. And I worked for a couple of years before I went to law school. And um, that was very much the right decision because it gave me quite a good commercial background, which I think was helpful after my initial training. Yes, we'll get into, of course, you founding Bellevue Law and, and everything that happened after that. But I did notice in a lot of the client feedback that you've got to praising working with you as a lawyer, how many clients have mentioned being pragmatic, being practical, being realistic in, in the advice that you give. And I, I wonder if part of that is because you had some of that work experience before you went to transition to being a lawyer. Maybe. And also, I think if you run your own firm, then you're a business person. Right. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of a group of many, maybe you know, 20 or 30 people I know who've made that transition from working in very large law firms to running their own law firms. And it's a very different job. So I would say in my firm, we're very keen to keep the standards of the big law firm, but our clients are often very different and the type of advice that they require is very different. It's rare the client who will thank me for a 20 page <laughs> memo nowadays. Um, and one of the things that I think we offer, we have a team of very senior lawyers. I think one of the things we offer is, in a sense, sort of partnering to help our clients make commercial decisions, but with, or obviously, with, with legal input. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, going back to when you embarked on your career, and as I mentioned, we'll, of course, return to, to Bellevue Law in a moment. You know, how did, how did being a lawyer in, in a city firm, in a large international law firm, match up with your expectations? Did you, did you know what you were getting into as you left law school? To the extent, to the extent that I had expectations, I think they've been set quite unrealistically. There was a, a program in England in the 90s called This Life, which is about young lawyers working hard and playing hard and living their best life. And, and unfortunately, it really wasn't <laughs> like that. Um, but it was, it was such a formative part of my career and, and, and of my life as well. So um, we really worked very hard indeed. That's not such a bad thing. That's it, it, that work ethic. I was just telling somebody today about the time that I stayed in the office for three days, just working and maybe having like an hour sleeping in the bedroom. It was normal for all of us. Right. It's not sustainable, I think, for a long period of time. But, you know, I was young and I was fit and I was ambitious and I learned so much by working in that way. But we also, I've also made lifelong friends. I met my husband on the first day of my training Very contract. Nice. Two of my children's godmothers are people I worked with at that time. And I've still got uh, like a personal and professional group of friends from that period in my life. So, you know, there's a lot of um, controversy nowadays, I think, about how hard lawyers in big firms work and young lawyers in big firms work. And, and that, that's valid debate to be having. Uh, and it's certainly a risk of people being pushed too hard. But I think I would say that it really was a very important formative time in my, in my career and in my life. And what, what drew you to litigation and employment law? Was there anything in, in particular that appealed to you about those practice areas? 
So I always thought that I was quite a lawyer's lawyer. I enjoy a bit of case law. I enjoy those spaces on the edge of what's established law and what the law ought to be and the arguments and the debates around it. I'm not personally an advocate, so I wouldn't have wanted to be a barrister, but I've enjoyed pulling together cases, pulling together evidence, making arguments, making submissions. And that, and that sits across both litigation and em employment law. Employment law, in a sense, I, I fell into it, as I said, when I was working in Hong Kong and then when I came back to run the pro bono work for the firm. But the same principles apply. And, and actually, my real love in some senses from a legal perspective is doing work on employment disputes because those cases are just so important to the individuals concerned and a lot of the work I do is in the area of sex discrimination which is something that I feel very passionately about as well and to be able to make a difference and to make changes in those areas um, feels very worthwhile. And what was the moment when you thought you know I'm going to start my own law firm what led up to that? It was entirely unstrategic. I'd worked in large firms for probably about eight years uh, before I had my children. And I'd had a career break. I had three children quite close together and I had a career break where I wasn't in private practice for about five years. But I knew I wanted to go back to it. Um, and I also knew I didn't really want to go back to those kind of long hours with a very small family. And I, I have plenty of friends who've done that and they've made it work and I, I take my hat off to them, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I looked around and I honestly couldn't see the job that I wanted to do. And I just decided, well, I might as well create it for myself. And so I, I, it, was as, it, it was as unstrategic as that. And I see people now setting up law firms and they have a you know, five-year plan. They've got a fast growth um, vision. Uh, they know where they're going to be in six months' time, in a year's time, in three years' time, five years' time. They know what their exit looks like. And I had none of that. I had um, a garden office, which we called the posh shed. <laughs> and it really wasn't even very posh. Um, and I had a laptop and I had some professional indemnity insurance and I had a cheap website. And I thought, I'll just give it a go because what have I got to lose apart from my pride? And I was concerned about my pride. But I didn't have any clients, which obviously that's quite an important part of any legal practice. I didn't have any clients at all. And so I was, I will say, I was a little bit nervous. But in the end, what's the worst thing that can happen is you know, a little bit of embarrassment maybe because I was going to tell everybody I was going to do this and then I would have to tell them that I was no longer going to do it because nobody <laughs> wanted me to do it for them. But it didn't turn out like that. It turned out, it turned out to be fine. Um, I, I started with two or three clients and hopefully I did a good job for those clients and they told their friends and their colleagues and I got more clients. And within about a year, I had more work than I could do myself. And I also realized that amongst my network, there was a very large number of exceptional female lawyers who had stopped working because really they'd felt that there wasn't much choice between not working at all and working maybe 80 hours a week. And they, they didn't want to do that like me. They didn't want to do that around their young families. So by offering these lawyers really complete flexibility in their working schedule, I was able to hire for a law firm that was basically based in a shed, I was able to hire lawyers from like, leading international firms. And they obviously did a great job for the clients. The clients came back and the business grew. And 
after about a year or two, I realized I was really onto something. There was this huge pool of predominantly female talent, predominantly mothers of young children, hemorrhaging from the legal profession, but really wanting to work. And obviously, there's a huge pool of clients who would like to instruct lawyers like that, particularly maybe if the fees don't compare to the fees of the larger firms with the kind of overheads and so on that they have. And um, inadvertently, uh, I fell into quite a successful business model. Tell us a little bit more about the, about the firm and, and about that model. How, how does it work? So, so the firm is a boutique law firm, and we practice employment law, litigation and investigations, and we have a private client practice as well. All of the lawyers are very senior. They've all got backgrounds in large international firms, and they all are given complete flexibility about their working practices. So we have no chargeable hour targets, and we have no set hours. Um, and the, the rule is that if you agree to do something for a client, you must do it. But beyond that, you're free to pick and choose. Uh, and that is very fundamental because, as I say, that's been what's enabled me to hire the caliber of lawyers who I've been able to attract to the firm. And in turn, that's what's enabled us to build a happy client base. It's grown over the past nine years. So we're now a team of about 20. And I think it will grow a little bit more because we've got the work to do that but we're not looking to build an enormous firm. Part of what makes my firm work is that it's a very supportive culture. And I think some of that comes from the fact that everybody knows everybody. And you, you can grow and you can maintain that up to a point. But we'd like to still be able to get everybody in, into one room. Um, and I think that makes, that makes a huge difference. And then, then the third prong of the firm is that we are very committed to ethical business practices. So in the UK, um, we were the first law firm to be accredited by the Good Business Charter. And now we're working towards B Corp accreditation as well. Can you tell us a little more about that? What does it mean to be accredited under the Good Business Charter? It's a measure of 10 different ethical business propositions, ranging from how you treat your people to what your environmental impact is to one that I feel very strongly about, which is paying your suppliers in a timely manner, particularly smaller suppliers. Uh, as a smaller supplier, I feel quite strongly about that myself. And tax compliance as well. It's actually a wonderful organization because it sits somewhere between having no accreditation whatsoever uh, and the very rigorous time-consuming accreditation of B Corp which is a, you know, it's a real hallmark of quality, but for a smaller business, it's quite hard to achieve that. It's a really interesting and worthwhile organization. And I think more, more people should look into accreditation by them. You, said, you mentioned that you were the first law firm to get the accreditation. Have there been more since then, or do you remain the only law firm? No, we're not the, <laughs> we're not the only ones. I'm, I mean, I, I'm quite evangelical about it. And I, I've told lots of other law firms, but um, I, I, I I know I know that there are several. Um, it's not all down to me. I know that there are there 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 are several That's who good. are, right and path. I'm of the view. I'm of the view. Uh, you know, it, it it's a perfectly reasonable ask. They expect, for example, that you would pay you know the living wage. I'm I'm of the view that if you can't afford to pay people the living age, wage, then there's something wrong with your business model. They're of the view that you should be paying tax and not involved in avoidance schemes. And again, 
I feel that we should all be contributing. So, so it's not it's not difficult. Uh, B Corp accreditation is difficult, right? Rightly so, but it does mean it's not for everybody because it's very resource intensive just to be able to show your compliance and to have the right policies and so on. And I think Good Business Charter is something for smaller businesses, uh, which is a really laudable scheme. You mentioned that you sort of identified this pool of talent, women and maybe others who were leaving law firms who were looking for more flexibility, but still wanted to practice law, you know, at the highest levels. I'm curious if you think that the model that you've set up with Bellevue Law can be replicated at the large law firm level. I mean, is this something that big law firms can do? You know, can they change their cultures to be more like what you've done? Such a good question. And if I'm very honest, I think the answer is yes, to a greater extent than they already do. But maybe it's easier for me. I think that as a profession, the legal profession is extremely unimaginative about what it can achieve in terms of flexibility and in terms of diversity more widely. And it's naturally with a small C, quite a conservative profession. And things are often done the way that they've always been done. And the classic and most obvious example of that is working from home. Until March 2020, many of my clients who are female lawyers working in large law firms would ask to maybe be able to work from home one or two days a week. And they were told that it was absolutely impossible to do that. It couldn't be done. And then from about March 2020 onwards, for a long period of time, they were told that not only was it possible to be done, but it must be done and it must be done whilst educating a number of children and queuing outside the supermarket for your weekly grocery shop um, without, you know, without very many other accommodations. And then once the pandemic was coming to a close, they were told to get back into the office again. And this is a profession which when their clients ask for something, they, they will rarely say no. So they are capable of great ingenuity and creativity when called upon to do so. And and I think that 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 could be applied much more extensively by larger firms. I think they have, if I can do it, they can do it. They should have the resources to be able to make it work and, and to be creative around how they make it work, whether it's job sharing, whether it's flexibility about when work is done. A lot of it comes down to trusting people to get their work done. Um, And I I, I trust the lawyers who work with me completely and utterly, and I'm right to do so because they've got very high standards. And I'm sure that the same is true of lawyers working in big firms. But that being said, the type of work that we do, it probably makes it a little bit easier. I don't really have the answer of how you would allow somebody to work much more flexibly if they're doing the kind of M&A deals that are on the front page of the Financial Times. I imagine that there might be a way to do it. And I imagine that if clients were demanding that law firms did it, they would find a way to do it. But I do accept that it's it's not it's not always straightforward. But I think we have to ask more of ourselves as a profession in terms of thinking about how to address these problems if we really genuinely want to be a more inclusive profession. I was thinking about that. And it's both a challenge and an opportunity, I think, for, for especially large law firms you know, they can be so decentralized compared to other organizations. I mean, of course, there's, you know, firm-wide policies and there's chair and, and managing partners, but you do have kind of more power centers in some ways across across practice areas or, or partners that are able to to influence even just, 
you know, the, the world that they work in. And just thinking through whether that makes it harder in some ways to change the culture of a law firm or, or if it actually presents more opportunities, you know, for one individual can maybe make more of a difference for the lawyers that they work with within, the, within a big firm. Well, I mean, the, the, the partnership model in itself, it's not unique to law, but it's a feature of the traditional legal career. And probably I'd say one of the features that makes the profession traditionally quite unfriendly to women, especially at the larger end, because the traditional model, you know, the sort of career that when we started out, one might have expected, although I think I realised quite quickly it wasn't going to be for me, be that, you know, you, you would train and qualify, you would be an associate for a number of years, and then you would be a partner, maybe a salaried partner and then an equity partner. And that would happen between your mid-20s and your mid to late 30s, which as a woman is going to cover the period where if you wanted to have children, you're probably also going to want to do that. And particularly the, the time period where you're likely to want to start your family is going to coincide with the time period where you might be expected to put your foot to the floor and show your commitment to the firm in order to be made you know, first a salaried partner. And then once you've overcome that hurdle, <laughs> demonstrate your worth and your entitlement to be made an equity partner. And that, I think, has traditionally been extremely problematic for female lawyers. And in my experience advising female lawyers in large firms, and it continues in many places, certainly not all. And of course, the happy female lawyers don't come to seek my advice. But, but in many places, that continues to be really very challenging. To back up, you represent clients from the legal profession um, in employment cases, so clients who are dealing with discrimination claims, um, harassment claims. You know, based on that client work that you're doing, are, are there any major takeaways that you see in terms of the, the challenges that women are experiencing? You started to touch on it in terms of, you know, just the timing of, of, of when you need to be, you know, accelerating your focus on your career, coinciding with when women are having families. But are there other trends or takeaways you're seeing from your cases in terms of what's what's going on in, in law firms that, that affects women? Well, it's a, I mean, I would just start by saying it's just an enormous privilege to have the practice that I do have where I represent so many talented female lawyers, but it's also the source of quite a lot of despair for me because so I've been working in this profession for 25 years now uh, and as a, as a much younger woman I would have expected quite a lot more change than we've seen and um, broadly I would say there are three factors behind a woman becoming so unhappy at work that they take the decision to seek legal advice. The first one upsettingly is sexual misconduct and that's been something that has been a theme throughout my whole career that I have experienced female lawyers I know experiencing shocking, egregious sexual misconduct. Not only does it go unpunished, but it often used to go unreported. And I think there's been a bit of a sea change since Me Too in that there's been a greater willingness by victims of that kind of behavior to speak up about it. And there's been a greater willingness on the part of employers 
to set the tone, to set policies, to make it clear that there will not be tolerance of that behaviour. And there's actually been regulatory intervention to make it clear that that behaviour is unacceptable, not only at an employment level, but at a professional regulatory level. And I'm not saying that it doesn't still happen because I know for a fact that it does. It's actually reported probably more frequently than it used to be because it's recognised as a regulatory issue. But it happens less often, honestly, because it's, you know, culturally it's less accepted than it used to be, which is a good thing. Um, and because it's now treated as the regulatory issue, which in my opinion it always was, um, but it's recognised and, and treated in that way. And so people who might have been prepared to behave in that way in the past recognise that the consequences potentially be quite severe for themselves. And um, a combination, I think, of, of um, women being more prepared to speak out about it and cultural becoming less accepting of that kind of behaviour. So that, that's been a really positive change in my, in the, you know, the sort of lifetime of my career. The second area we've just already touched upon is what happens to a female lawyer who has a family, um, who, who's, who's pregnant, who takes maternity leave, who um, comes back after having a baby. And I still say, I'd say the majority of the cases that I work on concern that nowadays because the impact on a woman's career of having children in the legal profession still seems to be often, too often, quite severe, seeing much less overt discrimination. But I see clients who maybe have their caseload taken away from them when they go on maternity leave, but it's not returned to them when they come back. There are business development opportunities that are not given to them. There are travel opportunities that are not given to them. And there's a perception that they are less committed and less ambitious, you know, even if there's no evidence to suggest that. And I've had, I've had clients who have been treated as less ambitious after they've had a child when their male colleagues have had children at the same time and they've not been treated as if they are going to be less ambitious as a result of that. That's a, a real theme which, which aligned with you know, the chargeable hour, which gives rise to long hours, you know, high billing culture, and that push to partnership through your mid to late 30s is a, is a real issue still in law firms for many, many women. And then the third factor is what some people would call unconscious bias, but it's the question of what does leadership look like to the people who are in power and who are making decisions about other people's careers and promotions. And it's whether you, a leader looks like a woman or the particular woman who's in front of you either asking for a promotion or being considered for a promotion. And I have many, many clients where they, they've been told that they're not performing or they're not yet performing where they need to be in order to get promoted. But when you dig into that in quite a granular way, there's no objective evidence for it. So I've had clients who've been told that they're not good enough yet at business development, but they can point to work that they've brought in and that's somehow been discounted. Or the classic case where you, you can have a, a woman who, who might be told that she doesn't have the leadership skills or the assertiveness to be promoted and she's too quiet, she doesn't put herself forward enough. But it, other women who do put themselves forward being told that they are aggressive or bossy or not team players 
And probably in those scenarios, those women just couldn't win. And once you've got to the point where you're needing to instruct a lawyer, you've got to consider your options quite seriously. You know, you've got the option of complaining constructively or otherwise. You've got the option of, with advice, bringing a claim. And I think the option that more and more people are taking now, which is, gives me some hope for the future, is the market option, <laughs> where they'll just go out and find another role that's better for them. And nowadays, there are so many opportunities that maybe didn't exist 20, 25 years ago for really talented, successful lawyers of all types, not just women, but people who want something different culturally to go out and find it. Mine is not the only firm that offers flexible working there are fascinating businesses doing alternative things in law around technology. There are opportunities to work in-house at really exciting companies. And it doesn't have to be the case, as maybe we were told when we were very much younger, that there's only one path to success. And I have many, many clients who I've said, well, you've, you know, you've got a great case and you could bring it if you wanted to, but maybe you just need to find yourself a new job. And often that's the best outcome for them. And you, you tend to see that far more often in the legal profession than people deciding to bring claims. Um, and there are, there, are, there are many reasons for that, including understanding what that looks like maybe more than some other clients might do because it's not, it's not an easy option. But I think the, the challenge to the legal profession more widely is going to be that you know, if it's not made a more appealing, fairer, more inclusive place to work, it will suffer itself because it will lose so many talented lawyers who expect that from their workplace. That's really encouraging to hear. Um, and it goes back, I think, to that point about sort of the practicality sometimes of the advice that you're giving your clients. Because I have wondered about that, you know, the understandable reluctance there could be as a lawyer or really any working person to come forward um, when you're experiencing particularly that latter category of, of you know, the implicit bias um, how do you bring a claim on that basis? They're so difficult to prove. It's encouraging to hear that there's more options for women. It's not just your law firm. There's more places you can go. I've certainly seen that in, in the U.S. as well. And picking up on that, that last point about implicit bias, I've seen that described as, you know, women and, and people of color having to, you know, constantly reprove themselves in, in the workplace, in the legal profession in a way um, that others may not have to, where there's there's less grace to make a mistake. You're getting less credit for that that origination for, for business development um, and just the burden that that puts um, as you're trying to move through your career. And I think you see that play out with the continuing pay differences. I mean, there's tons of data around how much of a pay gap there still is between men and women, particularly at the partnership level. I think in the US, I saw last year, it's, it's something like 44%. In the UK, if you look at the gender pay gap in big law firms, in, in many of them, it's greater than in investment banking, which is where you might expect to, to see it. And if, if you're taking into account the pay of the partners, which obviously you must do. It's very significant. And, and only a very small amount of that is going to be attributable to conscious bias and avert misogyny. But, but structurally, those businesses are just not set up in a way that is going to encourage and facilitate 
women becoming the most senior and the most highly paid people in them. And the evidence is that institutionally, they're not sufficiently interested in change to make that happen. Right. Yeah. That's what struck me as well when I was looking a little bit at the U.S. numbers. The pay, there is a pay gap on the in-house side as well, but it's nowhere near as large. And so there is something that's very specific to the law firm environment that's contributing to that differential. And, you know, it strikes me that there is the information out there to figure this out, to, to dig into, you know, what specifically the factors are. I mean, there's, you know, we have the billable hour, you have origination credit. It's, it's possible, I think, for firms to, to dig into their own information and understand more of the specific factors behind some of those those pay differences and, and how they can address them. As you said, it, it just takes the, the will and the, the incentive to do it. It takes the will and the incentive. And, and I am quite firmly of the view that that will come in time because these are businesses that are built on talent. You know, I mean, they, they don't make widgets. They sell services and they need the most talented people to work in them. And there is a genuine hemorrhaging of some of the most talented people. And it's not just women, it's intersectional. So it's, it's people with... Uh, all, all kinds of protected characteristics who feel different or are treated as being different within law firms. And there are so many very talented people in the end in a race for talent. Big law firms traditionally try to acquire the best talent by paying the best. But of course, there's more than one way to acquire talent and there's more than one interest for the most talented people. And, and not all of them will just want to work for the firms that pay them the best, many of them will want to work for the firms where they feel included, where the culture feels fair and kind. And I'm actually of the view that although there are a lot of new firms which are built around flexibility, and that there tends to be an elision between flexible working and, and not having to work very, very long hours and, and a culture that's kind and fair and supportive, there's no reason at all coming back to the beginning of our career and you're working those very, very long hours. If you've signed up to that with your eyes open, there's no reason at all why you can't be working really hard, hugely ambitious, have your feet to the floor and still expect to be treated fairly and with kindness. And, and the large firms that get that right will be the ones that win the race for talent. Yeah, and it just goes to show, I mean, a lot of the issues that we, not all of them, but a lot of the issues that we've been discussing today benefit everybody. I mean, mental health in, in the legal profession, having more flexibility, mm -hmm. allowing people to manage their personal lives and their work lives. As you say, if you get that right, you know, all of us benefit. And so it's, I think it's in everyone's interest to be thinking about these issues that that in a lot of ways will help women and, and people of color in particular, but, but kind of rise rise all, all boats along the way. We've talked a little bit about, and I found it encouraging to hear that the, the Me Too movement did have an impact that you've seen in people being more willing to come forward with claims and, and around sexual harassment and changing the culture uh, of what's considered acceptable in the work environment. Are there other areas of, of progress that you've seen or, or, you know, you mentioned hope, feeling hopeful, other areas of, of, of hope that are worth mentioning? I think there's a rise of female leadership in larger law firms. And I, I, I'm privileged to know several people 
who have risen through the ranks of large firms and are running them. And they're running them in ways that are authentic and fair and modern. And I think it's a, such, a, such a fascinating, interesting time to be a lawyer. And there will be many, many opportunities for people to lead really interesting and fulfilling lives alongside their professional lives as we move through the next 10 years. And it's going to be a, a new revolution in terms of the way that we, we do work. I think there's a lot of hope. Good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. And then on the other side, though, where do the biggest challenges remain? Well, I think it's, I think it's a, a lot to ask of one profession to be immune from the society that we live in <laughs> and uh, the misogyny and attitudes to women that we see all around us day in and day out. So I don't anticipate closing down my sex discrimination practice anytime soon as much as I, I wish that I was able to do that. It's still very, very difficult for women to progress fairly and times change, but they change slowly. So for this series, we would like to ask our guests the same two questions at the end with the time that we have remaining. So the first question is for our listeners who, who are lawyers and legal professionals from around the world, what is one thing you would ask them to do in their work lives, in their personal lives, to help address uh, some of the challenges we've been talking about today? I would ask anyone who's in a position of power in the legal profession to be imaginative and creative in solving this. Imagine that your best client came to you and they said, we want you to make your firm a more equal place. What would you do to make that happen? And in many cases, the answer is you would do more than you're already doing. And you wouldn't say, oh, oh that sounds rather hard. We don't do hard things. <laughs> you would say, we love hard things. That's what you pay us for. And now we're going to find a way to solve this problem. I love that. Right. You have some of the most brilliant minds in the world working in these law firms. It seems like it, it should be solvable. They can do hard things. Um, and then my last question, Florence, and, and thank you again for, for joining us today. My last question is to ask you, what would success look like to you? How will we know when we've you know, reached the goal of, of making the legal profession a fully equitable and inclusive place to work? Such, such an interesting question. And it, it probably looks different to different people. But I think if you can see a funnel into the legal profession, which is diverse in so many different ways, and if you can see over time that those people are also being able to progress in the same way that they were able to enter the profession, and if you're getting feedback that people feel included and valued, then you know that you are making progress in the right direction. And sadly, we're not there right now. Maybe at the bottom of the funnel, but the bottom of the funnel was pretty diverse when I was at the bottom of the funnel. <laughs> it's the top of the funnel that we need to be worrying about now. And you know, alongside some really amazing efforts that are being taken to open up access to the profession to a wider group of people, that's not good enough if we're not then able to nurture and retain them and to do that in a way that makes them feel fulfilled and happy and have a sense of well-being rather than a sense of unhappiness and exclusion. So I think we've a long way to go, 
But when the top of the funnel starts to look a little bit more like the bottom of the funnel, we'll know that we're beginning to get there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you again for joining us today. One question I was going to ask you, which I didn't, is I'm curious just how you named your law firm Bellevue, because I find it notable that it's not named after yourself, as so many law firms tend to be. So I hatched the plan to start this law firm 10 years ago, and traditionally law firms are named after their founders. And I really didn't want to do that for a number of reasons, the first of which is nobody can spell my surname. So... I'll just lose clients. They won't be able to find me. Nobody can spell my my surname. It's it's quite an unusual surname. Americans think it's very Dickensian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and if I ever meet anybody who's got my surname, we both congratulate each other on having found the other one. So, so I didn't want to call it Brocklesby Law for that reason. And also actually because I, I, I didn't really want it to be identified just with me. I, you know, I, I thought that other people might join me in time, which they have done. Uh, and they don't they don't need to also be trying to spell my surname to all of their clients and having their email addresses misspelled. Um, so, so it's actually named for my local area. There's a part of southwest London where I live where there's Bellevue Road. Nice. Um, I've actually situated my law firm's office around the corner there from there in a completely different road after all but it's it's, it's named it's named for the local area. I wanted to have something that resonated with me without being too parochial and I hope that we found it. The Hearing Twill Takeover, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com slash the hearing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.